Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. So Joshua chapter 5, and there's something about this story that the Lord keeps drawing me back to. And uh, it makes me nervous when God keeps doing that because it makes me feel like I might not be getting something. And if you're like me, then you know that we're the type of people that we like to read it and get it and move on. Um, And that doesn't work when the word is alive. Amen? It's like you read it and get it and move on, and then you read it again and hopefully get something new and get it and move on. And then you read it again and get something new and then move on. And so that's why it's so important that we stay in this word, because just when you thought you had it, just when you wanted to have had it, uh, the Lord's like, I've had it. (laughs) Get back in this word. And so I want to come back to a passage. The Lord's reeling me back into this passage, and it's, it's the place between the Jordan and the Jericho. All right, we've talked a lot, it's this reoccurring theme in worship over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about Jericho. Uh, there's been a lot of really cool prophetic stuff around um, Jericho and it coming down. I think it was maybe last Sunday we talked about the curse that was on anybody who tried to rebuild Jericho and how that curse came to pass with Hael. And there's all sorts of different nuancey things to dig into here. But um, maybe a little less than a year ago, I preached on uh, you have to have a Jordan before you have a Jericho. And we talked about the crossing of the Jordan and how the waters parted like they did in the Red Sea and how they carried the ark across first and, uh, and the priests stood in the river while uh, the rest of the nation crossed over. And then they took the stones, the 12 stones, and made the monument there. There's a lot going on in this narrative. But I believe that so many believers, so many Christians today in 2022, we live in this weird place between the Jordan and our Jericho. It's it's a gray area. And if you remember a couple months back, one of our big points in, in a message that was preached from up here was how the gray area is diminishing. The grace for the gray area is lifting. And if you're living in the gray area, it's time to keep moving, all right? So this this place, it's almost like two thresholds. Jericho was a threshold into the promised land, and the Jordan was a threshold into this place. And we want to believe, well, if I've crossed the Jordan... If I let the presence go before me and I did the monuments and, and we did the whole thing and we came in and remembered the law and we, you know, all this other stuff, we want to believe that we're in the promised land. And in a way, we are in the promised land, but the promised land isn't in us yet. And, and so we have all these Christians. We have this, this massive church that's growing in numbers. Uh, it's growing by headcount, but the transformation hasn't taken place. The promises haven't taken root yet in in the lives and the hearts and the spirits of believers. And so I feel like that might be why the Lord is saying, you don't get it just yet. You get it, but there's more to get. And so join me this morning as we jump into Joshua chapter 5, and let's see what what it is that the Lord wants us to get. So I'm going to just start reading in in verse 1. Now it came about, so basically... Uh, they've crossed the Jordan. Um, that we, you know, we talked about Rahab at a fireside recently. That was a really cool fireside if you were there. Um, if you weren't, it's not on tape, so just, you missed it. It's, that's it. There's nothing else to say about it. Um, Israel crosses the Jordan. Chapter 4 is the memorial stones. Um, but chapter 5, it says this. Now, it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. Now, there was a time when the, princip- the hearts of the principalities of this world, the hearts of the rulers of the thrones, of the kingdoms and the governments of this world. There was a time in our history when those hearts were yielded to what was going to happen next. There was a time when the mouth of hell um, was quieter than it is right now. 
There was a time in our history, in fact, some of you can remember a time when uh, the agenda of Satan was not as well articulated and pronounced. It was not as publicized and public as it is today. Why? Because the world stood and watched God bring his people out of a wilderness place, out of wandering and into a land of purpose, a place of destiny. However, because the people of God stayed on the right side of the Jordan, on the bank of the Jordan, as because the people stayed there and didn't press into what they were called to take, didn't move into that destiny, over time, all the Canaanites, over time, all the principalities of the world, over time, the governments and the agendas and everything else start saying, okay, they're, you know, God did this crazy thing, whatever, but seems like coast is clear. Let's get back to business. And so it's important that we understand and that we see throughout church history sort of the ebb and flow of what happens here. Because the Lord is saying that after they crossed the Jordan, and God did not just do this for his people, he did it for the rest of the world. This move, this miracle was not just, see, back at the Red Sea, it wasn't just for Israel there either. It was so Egypt knew how powerful God was. It was so the captors of God's people, the ones who enslaved them, would be intimidated and set back. We just heard um, Pastor Bob at Smith Mills Camp uh, talk through uh, the, the, the plagues and the deliverance out of Egypt um, Friday night. What a great word. And uh, thank you guys for those of you that came out and worshiped with us at Smith Mills. What, a, what an awesome week um, we had down there. So it, coming up to this point, God is saying to his people, okay, everybody's nervous. Everybody's shaking. So here's what you're going to do. At verse 2, it says, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourselves flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. It wasn't that kind of second time, John. Uh, second time means because this happened once, um, right as soon as everybody came out of Egypt and into the wilderness, and the, uh, the, the command of the Lord was to set a, aside this nation for himself. And so everyone was circumcised. But if you read through this chapter, and I'm not going to read every line of this chapter, you're welcome to go back and read it. Um, but what we find out is that the generation that died out in the wilderness, because they knew, because they were told early on, right after the spies came in within like the first year of the wilderness wandering. The two spies come in, they come back out and they say, God's got this. Let's go in. This place is flowing with milk and honey. But the 10 other spies were like, no way there's giants in there. We're not doing it. So the Lord's kind of like ticked. And he said, that's fine. You and all your people are going to die in the wilderness. And I'll wait till there's a generation that's ready to do this the right way. And so the two spies lived, the other spies and their whole generation died out in the wilderness. Well, because they knew they were dying out in the wilderness, they stepped back from the commands. And it actually says an entire generation, the one that was going to make it into the promised land, they grow up uncircumcised. Now, the reason why this is important, and I was praying into this just to, um, just to sort of say, all right, Lord, like, what, what, do you, what do you want to say here? Why is it, see, if I'm, I'm, a, I'm a military strategist, you know, and I, I run campaigns, um, from our staff room down the hall. That's our war room. That's where the blueprints roll out and we hear the Lord and move forward. Um, I'm thinking to myself, God, this is not the time when we need all of our fighting men like nursing wounds in their tents, feeling bad for themselves with a bag of frozen peas, you know, really milking their wives for all they can. This seems like a time when we should march. Everybody's afraid of us. This is, the, this is it. God, maybe you didn't notice, but everybody's nervous. Did you see there were a couple kids over here on the bank when the waters came up, and there was a couple of Canaanites over here and some visitors from this land and, and this tribe and these Amorites and these Malachites. God, now's the time. They're nervous. Let's take them. Let's strike while the iron's hot. But at that time, at that time, the Lord is saying, yeah, let's strike while the iron's hot. Now that this generation has seen what I'm capable of in the same way the last generation saw waters parted, 
This generation just saw waters parted. And so the second time, when it says, so Joshua circumcised, the second time, what it means is that this nation underwent that same covenantal sacrifice that took place a generation prior. And as I was digging into the Lord and asking, all right, God, so what do we need to know about circumcision? Because we know that the New Testament tells us that now uh, the, the, the law of physical circumcision is not important to the Lord. What's important to the Lord is the circumcision of the heart. Amen? Amen? Some of y'all are real thankful for that. Um, but again, if we're coming back to the question of why are we in the promised land, but we're not winning any battles or taking any ground, I believe it's, this is part of it. You see, first of all, we've got to know that God knows when to ask for a sacrifice. God knows when to make us weak. God knows when to do something that's going to slow us down. That's going to that's going to cause us to enter into a time of recovery and restoration and healing. Somebody needs to get this this morning. Because if you're looking around with your natural eyes and you're thinking, okay, now's when I'm going to do this. Now's when we're going to do this. We have to keep an ear to the heart of heaven and understand that sometimes it's counterintuitive. Sometimes the Lord leads us into a season of cutting, a season of healing, a season of restoration, a season of stripping, a season of removal, a season of, of painful um, uh, separation. But he knows when to do it. And it's not what makes sense to us. Some of you guys, you feel like at a time when, you should, when your ministry, when your calling, when your giftings should be at their absolute peak, the Lord cuts you down. God, what's going on? What, what is this? We were going 150 miles an hour. Did you see us cross that river? That was crazy. Let's take this city. Nope. Instead, you're going to sharpen knives. And they're not going to be to fight with. Lord, what do we need to know about circumcision? Before Jericho, the flesh surrounding our intimacy has to be removed. If you're not grossed out, write it down. If you are grossed out, take a deep breath and then write it down. This gray area, this no man's land of being just in the promised land by the skin of our teeth, still shaking the sand from the beach of Jordan out of our sandals, this is not where we were meant to stay. But if we are to move forward, saints, the flesh that surrounds our intimacy with the Lord must be removed. And, and if we can just glean anything from this, this is, why, this is why the Lord chose circumcision to begin with. Because it, it is a significant symbol of selfishness and flesh that is wrapped up, that, is, that it plays too big a part in our intimacy. And saints, we are called to this intimacy with God, but just like, our, just like marriage, if your intimacy in your marriage is marked by selfishness, if, there's, if, there is, if you enter into intimacy in your marriage covenant for selfish gratification, it will fall wildly short of what it's meant to be. So we could just stop right here and do a little public service announcement for marriages, all right? But we won't. We'll just, we'll save that. We'll save that for another message. But it's the same thing. The Lord wants an intimacy with us that is not dictated by our flesh, that our flesh plays no part in. That's why, that's why, was it last week? God, it feels like a month ago. That's why we were talking about the abuse of the Holy Spirit. Because when, when, we, um, when we sort of objectify the role of the Holy Spirit to serve selfish purposes, Intimacy becomes this one-sided thing. And we miss out on the unity, on the consummation of what the covenant really requires between us and God. And so 
before we take Jericho, some of us, we've been marching around Jericho for like 40 years. Forget seven days. We've been marching around Jericho. We couldn't wait. Once we got on the right side of the Jordan, we're like, that's it. We're taking Jericho. And we run and we're marching and we're marching and we're marching and we're marching. And we're not in the wilderness anymore, so we're starting to wear out our sandals. You know what I'm saying? The grace lifted off the sandals. And so stuff's starting to wear down. Like, I'm starting to wear down. I'm praying that you can hear the Lord this morning concerning your time of intimacy with him. That's what I love about Tuesday nights. It's sort of like uninhibited intimacy where people will go there with the Lord. Some of you guys, you, you, you're like, you're like a, you tease the Lord. It's a tease. You're like a bride that teases the Lord. But you're only going to use intimacy as leverage. And we got to be careful. Because this is how we serve him. We remove our flesh from the equation. If we're afraid of the, um, if we're afraid of the world, so again, part of taking our flesh out of the picture, it makes us strangers in a strange land. The Israelites were the only people in the known world who would have practiced this surgical procedure. And I think sometimes for us, there are things that we have to remove from our lives. There are, there are physical things that have to be circumcised out of our lives because they, are, they exist in us to gratify the flesh. And so the thing is, is that we, um, we, we carry those things with us in this sort of defensive posture against the world, which is sort of ironic because we're actually more aligned with the world in the, in the gratification of that flesh. Does that make sense? And so um, I, I want to tie these two things together. The timing of this is impeccable. How many of you know God's timing is always just right? He's just right. But if we're afraid of the world, a defensive posture can prevent us from walking in obedience to the Lord. I can hear Israel saying this when God says, okay, it's time. We're going to circumcise everybody again. I can hear the, especially the soldiers, especially the, the real mighty warriors, say, but God, they're finally afraid of us. We finally have our voice back. We've been wandering around in the wilderness like, like tiptoeing around the Edomites. Like, like we're, 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 if you don't know that story, go back and read it. If, if you're, you know, we haven't been able to plant or sow or reap or grow anything. We've been nomads living in goat hair tents. God, come on. They're finally afraid of us. And I can hear the heart of God saying, no, 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 no. They're afraid of me. They're afraid of me. And you're going to be afraid of me if you don't get circumcised real quick like. And so... Saints, this defensive posture of like, okay, we've got our eyes on the world. And as soon as they shut up and lock the doors of, of, uh, of those, those cities, as soon as we see those guys retreat, that's it. Let's go. Nah. Get your ear to heaven. They were never afraid of you. They're afraid of him. So that flesh in closing of this point represents a sinful nature. One that will remain active in our intimacy with the Lord. He actually says, the Lord actually says, I'll read it to you. Um, he actually says in uh, verse 8, Now when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, watch this. This is the Lord's words right here. Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. The covenant was renewed at this point. And what, what rolled away here was the flesh that was carried through the wilderness. The last dying remnants of that flesh that was still present on this nation, on this new generation. And I believe that as a new generation of Christendom today, that the Lord desires. A lot of us, we look at the generations before us and we say, yeah, you got it wrong. 
How many young people in the room, you do that? You look back at people that are like your parents' age and you're like, <laughs> just, just, just stop. We'll take it from here, guys. I think sometimes we, we get kind of prideful because in hindsight, right, 2020, you know, it's perfect. We can see it all. We can see, oh, that's the old way. That's the old way. That's the old way. That's the old way. All the while preserving the most intimate parts of flesh within ourselves. And so it's at this place, by his grace, we've been allowed to cross the river. We're on the right side of the river. We're standing at the threshold of the promised land. And the Lord's like, okay, now I want it all. Okay. So let's keep going. So the next thing they do, as soon as everybody was healed from the circumcision, and I'd like to think there were probably some guys who, you know, you know how today, like, people take a little bit longer to heal, you know? Some guys are like, oh, I still need everything brought to me. You know who you are. Uh, uh, my wife cured me of that really quick. Uh, my mom was somebody that brought everything to me. My wife was somebody who was like, be a man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> See me all moms are like clapping in the room and you're like raising up. Anyway, but anyway, careful now. Roll that reproach of Egypt away in Jesus' name. So I want to just, I want to, I want to point out that uh, maybe they're healed. Maybe some are still healing. Maybe they're still kind of like some guys are walking kind of bow-legged, you know. They come in and what's the next thing they do? I'll read it to you. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month in the desert plains of Jericho. They observed the Passover. It's interesting. If you're writing things down, you can write this down. We must observe God's Passover before we obtain our pass through. We must observe God's Passover. Again, I'm saying God's Passover because... As much as we like to take ownership of everything that God does, this was by him for him, okay? He wanted a people for himself. He wanted a bride. He wanted a, a group that he could dwell among. And so when that angel of death comes across Egypt and wipes out the firstborn sons in every Egyptian household, but all the Hebrew babies survived, there's a couple things going on here. Number one, I think we miss that one generation prior, it was the Pharaoh that went through and wiped out all the Hebrew baby boys. And so 80 years later, here comes God saying, no, I'm, I'm, vengeance is mine, all right? And I think when we, when we can pick up on places where the Lord is bringing justice and righting what's wronged and turning the tables, it helps our faith. It helps our confidence grow in the Lord. So he comes in, and it's God's Passover, but, but Jericho was our pass through. And some of us, again, we're, we're, okay, the circumcision, okay, all the flesh of my life, okay, whatever it is, Lord, whatever that you want to point out and pull down and separate from me, all right, I'm yours. But there's this place where God brings his people 40 years after the first Passover back through it again. Now, Passover would have taken place in the wilderness, um, but it just, it would have been different. And I'm not going to get into all the nuances of it, but uh, we will mention a couple of things. But if you're, again, writing things down, we must observe God's Passover before obtaining our pass through. This Passover would have been the first meal that they worked for in an agricultural sense. You see, Israel was nourished how? In the wilderness. The manna that fell from heaven. Every morning, fresh manna. Every morning, the Lord's miraculous provision fell from the sky and sustained his people in the wilderness. Now, we know that manna was not all they ate. There was that quail incident. And there's also 
uh, rules in Deuteronomy. You can read Deuteronomy 2, 3, Numbers, 11. There are places throughout the Old Testament where, um, where we see instructions given concerning other foods. In fact, some of them would say, you're going to buy food from these nations around you. One place, actually, the Lord says, you're going to buy water. Y'all thought you were the first ones. You're going you're gonna to buy water. You're actually going to interact with the economies of the world around you. That's the wilderness place. I'm still going to sustain you. I'm still going to provide supernaturally for you. But there is going to be this sort of back and forth thing because you're nomads. Now, they had flocks, and there was instructions for the Passover about the lamb. And, uh, and so there were different things happening. But when they come in, it actually says here, the, right here, on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. They ate some of the produce of the land. Whose land? Their land. This is before Jericho. But whether this was like wild grains growing or some of the outskirts of uh, the wheat fields and whatnot of the, uh, of the Jerichoans or uh, some of the neighboring tribes, they partake of the land that they were called to. And I want to talk about this for a minute because it's something so important and it's a place where the church gets hung up. Again, if we're answering the question of why are we in the promised land, but we're not winning the battles that we're fighting, okay? This is the first meal they worked for. This was the first harvest and process of the yield of the promised land. And if you're, you really want to get into the hard stuff, verse 12 says, the manna ceased the day after they ate it. So they partook of the field, and for the first time in 40 years, they woke up the next morning, and it had not snowed manna. Now, if you were born in those 40 years, and you thought that life with Jehovah was cloudy with a chance of meatballs, this would have been a wake-up call. The heck just happened. You would be frustrated. You would be discouraged. You might be hungry. Wait a minute. I always woke up, rolled over, and just took a big fistful of man. That's how I started my day. And now it's just sand and dirt. No, it's not just dirt. It's the soil that your destiny is to harvest from. Guys, as believers, if we expect to live on the right side of the Jordan River, if we expect to take Jericho, we better learn how to work the land. Everybody loves manna. But I want you to pay attention to this transition of how God provides and sustains. You see, the circumcision and the Passover were linked. Circumcision would carry, uh, circumcision would carry selflessness into the work of the promised land because God had set up these festivals and these celebrations and there was this intrinsic um, oneness with us uh, crucifying the flesh, sacrificing a uh, self-gratification to stay in this covenant with the Lord. But the Passover would carry freedom into the work. So selflessness and freedom. You see, the freedom that was carried into the work, it, it, it was the, the promised land would require work in a way that the wilderness did not require it. And saints, as people who, as a generation that's that raised up, that, that is the generation in America right now. We are a generation that does not work. We are a generation that has been fed by handouts. And we've got to be so careful about this because that same cultural thing translates into our walk with the Lord. And so we sing songs about manna, and I don't think it's wrong. I think God will bring us still into like microcosmic sort of wildernesses. God will bring us into places where we rely on supernatural provision. Amen? Like we, we, we don't need to be ashamed of that. But that is not the promised land. That is not the principle. That is not the destiny that he's called us to. Some of y'all hate this message because you're like, I just want to live on manna. But when God gives you land, he expects you to work it. And before Jericho could be taken, I believe that Israel had to step up to the plate. They had to harvest some grain. They had to bake some bread. 
The miracle isn't in the manna. It's in the manifestation of destiny. When you're in the promises, when you're walking in the promises, the miracle is not in the manna. It is in the manifestation of destiny. The Lord woke me up early this morning and started speaking to me about this. And so I just want to give you some things. If you want to write some things down, um, the miracle in the wilderness is what falls from heaven, but the miracle in the promised land is what grows up from the earth. That's why we like to keep one leg in the wilderness. Because it keeps us dancing and singing and shouting, God, we need a miracle. No, you don't need manna. You need to manifest your destiny. The assignment in the wilderness is to keep walking. The assignment in the promised land is to keep working. Ooh, I don't like that, Zach. What about striving has to cease? What about rest? What about the six-month rule? <laughs> Some of y'all, you get to like five months and 29 days, and then you leave for three weeks, and then you come back, and you're like, I'm just starting my six months. I, gotta, you know, I just need this. It's not that kind of work, okay? The miracle, uh, the, the assignment in the wilderness, again, assignment. The assignment in the wilderness is to keep walking. The assignment in the promised land is to keep working. Miracles are a manifestation of who God is among us, but blessing is the manifestation of who we are in God. I'm going to say that one more time because it's important that we understand the difference. We have used the word blessing. We have abused the word blessing. We have manipulated and adulterated and misconstrued the concept of blessing. And the Lord started to convict me of this when I was writing a message a couple months ago, but I was too embarrassed to really get into it at that point. So I'm just going to talk about it now. Uh, we have looked at lives that are um, a demonstration of godly disciplines, of, of things like generosity, of first fruits and tithing, things like obedience and surrender, things like hard work. We've looked at things like that and we say, oh, they're so blessed, they're so blessed, they're so blessed. But what it is is we think God chose them to pour out supernatural favor on. That's not blessing. That's living according to godly principles. Blessing is the side effect. God did not choose strategically to bless eeny, meeny, miny, mo. You get to win the lottery. And eeny, meeny, miny, mo. You get to be a successful business owner. And eeny, meeny, miny, no. Eeny, meeny, miny, no. You weren't ready for that. That's deep, Will. No. This, there's, a, there's an issue with the church as it concerns the principle of blessing and stewardship. God does not just like blindly bless like that for no reason. He set up creation to respond passively to our obedience to his principles. Miracles, I'm going to say it one more time. Miracles are a manifestation of who God is among us. When God, and by the way, we still need miracles. We still should be praying for miracles. We should still be expecting miracles. I'm not saying, okay, miracles are bad now. Do not misunderstand me. What I'm saying is that miracles are that sovereign manifestation of God. He might choose to raise this one from the dead and not that one. He might choose to heal this person's issue and not that one. Right at the same altar call with the same person praying over both. I grew up thinking like, well, I need this person to pray over me. No, you don't. Well, I got to catch God on a good day. Every day is a good day for God. Miracles are a manifestation of God among us in all his sovereignty. Blessing is a manifestation of us in him when we're living in him, when we're walking in him, when we're breathing in him, when we're obedient to him, when we're living lives of sacrifice to him. Some of us don't like that. It's easier to think that, well, you know, he's just got the manna today and maybe I'll get it tomorrow. Or maybe the Lord brought you to a place where the ground is fertile. 
Maybe the Lord brought you to a place that has had your name on it for the last 40 years and you're finally in it and now you've got a pocket full of seed to sow and the season is right. Stop waiting for manna. I used to think it was the greatest thing in the world when people lived lives from one miracle to the other until the Lord started to convict me and said, do you think that's really how I want my people to live? Do you think that's really how I, 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 I want my bride to live is just hanging out until I perform another miracle? No. That doesn't mean he's going to stop, but it means that we have to start. The miracle in the wilderness is the manna. And when you look at somebody who's in the wilderness and you see manna falling on them every day, you're like, man, I just wish I had that. No, you don't. I wouldn't trade anything to be back in the wilderness. The Lord did a supernatural thing to bring me to where I am now. And guess what? I'm going to work to sustain it. Oh, some of y'all are just clapping because I'm done with that point. I actually have some more, but I'm going to save it for the second service. Y'all have to stay if you want to hear it. I'm just kidding. No, that's it. Let's keep going. We got to keep going. So chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked And behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, no. (laughs) No. Like, no, you're asking the wrong question. I want to just point out a couple of things here in closing and get you all on your way. But uh, Joshua, if you remember Joshua, back when Moses was still leading the people, there was a tent of meeting that was set up some ways outside the camp. And even though the tabernacle was in the middle of the camp, uh, there was a place, and that was the place of corporate worship. That's where all the priests would go. That's where all the people would gather and and there'd be music playing. And it would be kind of like a Sunday morning experience where, you know, sacrifices are going up and and there's, you know, there are times of, you know, sackcloth and ashes around that. But there's also times of celebration and excitement and people would uh, share in one another's victories and one another's burdens and that sort of thing. But there was a tent that would be set up some ways outside the camp, out in the desert. And, um, and it was where Moses would go and meet with the Lord separately so that he was away from the noise, away from the mess. And out in that place, the Lord would meet with him and he would give him instructions and directions and he would uh, speak to him wisdom and discernment of how to lead and that sort of thing. And when Moses began to bring Joshua up in his mentorship program, uh, Joshua would go out to that tent with him. And as Israel was famous for, and the church has carried on this legacy, um, they'd be out there for a while, and Israel would start complaining. They would start fussing about something. Well, somebody's small group is using this Bible study and, you know, whatever. Well, somebody else, you know, we've been ignoring this widow, or this person hasn't had their benevolence check cut yet, or this missionary, you know, isn't getting their project taken care of, or, you know, whatever it was, something, not some issue would come up in the camp. And uh, so Moses would get up and he would go and, and, he would, and he would lead. But Joshua would stay. He'd stay out there a few hundred yards away, past the noise, past the nonsense. And he would linger in the presence of the Lord. And I believe that in that time, Joshua learned a valuable lesson that while Moses would go and, and do people, Joshua would stay and do God. And I think that Joshua uh, built for himself a time away. And it was in that time away, if you notice, there's no one else around. Everyone else is back at Gilgal when this happens. But when Joshua was by Jericho, he's a military leader too, and he went out. I see him out there early one morning before everybody else is up. 
And just at, as the sky is just starting to get to where you can see somebody in front of you, you can't really tell, does that person have wings? I don't know, can't be. It must just be a shadow. As the sun just is starting to peak up, he's out there meeting with the Lord. He's out there talking about Jericho. Lord, how's this going to play out? What are we going to do? How's this going to look? They've got a city. We have tents. They've got chariots and armor. We have slingshots and sandals that are now starting to wear out. And it was there in that quiet place, in that alone place. And saints, if you want to take anything home from this, I want you to get this. Some encounters are missed because they were meant for just us. Some encounters are missed because they were meant for just you. Some encounters are meant for the, everybody. And you miss it when you don't show up with everybody, when you don't show up with the corporate whole, when you don't show up uh, to, to sing with one heart and one voice in unity with the bride as a whole to join the, the global church of Jesus Christ in glorifying and magnifying him. But some encounters are meant for just you. And it's kind of like, you know, if a tree falls in the woods and nobody's there to hear it, does it make a sound? Well, Joshua was there to hear it. He was there to see it. And he sees a man with his sword drawn. Saints, set aside some time to be with the Lord. It's more important now than it ever was. And we're, we're moving into um, a little bit more intentional discipleship as a church. You're going to be hearing about that probably this fall. Um, we're going to be uh, moving folks into... Um, into the studies that we have going on, but also just into consistent um, time of devotion and time of prayer, time of intimacy with the Lord. And uh, I'm excited about it because I feel like this is the Lord, the Father, the revival of the Father, restoring order and finishing what he started. Set aside time to be with him. Wake up a little early. Go to bed a little late. And, and set aside time because I believe with my whole heart the Lord is dying to show you some stuff. But it's meant for just you. The thing that I want you to note about this man who was there was that his sword was drawn. In a time when Israel was still healing from circumcision, in a time when, uh, when they were celebrating the Passover, in a time when they were not geared up for war. The sword of heaven was drawn for them. And I want you to know that even if you're in a season of healing, in this place this morning, if you're in a season where you don't feel like you have the strength to engage in some spiritual warfare or some battle or whatever it is, you see Jericho on the horizon right now. Some of y'all, that's where you're at. You've crossed this Jordan. God's brought you through, and this is exactly where you're at. And you're seeing that city, and you're like, you have to be kidding me. It took everything I had just to get across that, and now you're still wanting to remove flesh out of my life and call me to a deeper place with you? You're pointing out to me the land that now has to be worked. And what? This city? Are you kidding me? Even when you're too weak to fight, the sword of heaven is drawn. And I want to say this in closing. Let's go ahead and stand up. I love what he says. He sees somebody with their sword drawn. And, you know, the first thing... I'm thinking too. I'm like, are you a good guy or a bad guy? Because I can't tell. It's still too dark out. It's too early in the morning. I'm just tell me now while I'm this far away. I see your sword drawn. What do I need to know? Are you for us or against us? I love it. No. No. I'm the commander of heaven's armies. The question is, are you for us or against us? Are you for heaven? Because if you're not, you're against it. 
Are you for us or for our adversaries? He says, no, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord of heaven's armies. And Joshua fell on his face uh, to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? If you can write one last thing down, get this. We have to stop enlisting God in our battles and we have to start getting enlisted in his. I think as believers for too long, for too long, we come face to face with some obstacle, some issue, some whatever, and, and that's when we start to pray. God, I need you, I need thee, oh, I need thee. And we get all like decrepit and desperate to get God fighting on our behalf. Whether or not God fights on our behalf is not the right question. We're asking the wrong question. We've got to stop trying to get God to bless what we're doing, and we've got to start blessing what he's doing. We've got to stop enlisting him in our battles, in our fights, in our struggles, and we've got to, even if it means completely turning 180, I'll even say repenting from our battles to go and fight in his. Your battles will lead you right back across the river and out into the wilderness. Yep, yep. And I'll close with this. The captain of the Lord's hosts said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua is um, sort of renowned as this Old Testament archetype of Jesus, the Yeshua, um, the Hebrew name for Jesus and Joshua are linked. And there's a, there's a, there's a school of thought that, you know, we see some of that messianic spirit on Joshua as he leads. In fact, Joshua, other than Jesus is the only main character in biblical history where there is no recorded sin in his entire narrative and biography which is pretty cool. I wish that was said of my biography, but I, I, miss, I miss that boat. But in the same way that Jesus responds to the Father's holiness, we don't see Jesus necessarily, you know, having this encounter where he's asked to remove his sandals, but Jesus creates a place of holiness around the times when he removes the sandals from the feet of his followers and washes those dirty, dusty feet. Joshua is planted perfectly between Moses and Jesus, perfectly between the wilderness and the promises. And in this encounter, he goes through the same thing that Moses does when Moses is before the burning bush. Moses, this is holy ground, take off your sandals. Now we talked about that a couple of months back, but the, the, the parallel that I wanna close with today is not the fact that this was holy ground or that the sandals were removed. The parallel I wanna point out is that this was not a place of holiness that was meant to be stayed in. This was a place of holiness that was meant to impart and assign destiny to go with. Just like Moses at the burning bush. Can you imagine Moses at the burning bush? And God says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go lead my people into uh, freedom. You're going to go set all the captives of, of the Hebrew people free. And you're going to take them out. And I'm going to prove who I am through you and set aside. And, and can you see Moses just sitting there like, that's awesome pulling out marshmallows and sharpening sticks. Can I have some more? Dad jokes. But that's what we do. That's what we do. We find a place of encounter and we want to send down tent stakes and pegs. We want to set up shop. We, we're the disciples on the hill that want to build a shelter for Elijah that want to build a shelter to keep God right here where he is. We're the ones who say, hey, how do, how do we sustain this? And the Lord's like, I'm telling you how to sustain it. 
You keep moving. Everything that you're receiving in this place, it is not meant for this place. There's a whole promised land ahead of you. I did not pull my people out of bondage, out of slavery, out of captivity to get you on the right side of the wrong wilderness. I have a destiny and a purpose and a plan. And if you don't keep walking, you will never find it. If you don't start working, you will never find it. If you don't live according to the disciplines and the principles and the plans, you won't see it. That Jericho will forever be the giant city in the distance. Providence, Rhode Island will always be that city right over the border that we just look at. Providence, ugh. So sinful, so broken. I can't even face it. New Bedford. (laughs) Smells like fish. (laughs) Fall River. Breach. (laughs) New England will always be the Jericho waiting for a people to walk around stripped of their flesh full of their faith, aware of what it took to bring them out of bondage, ready to celebrate who God is right in the face of the world that's intimidated, not by them, but by him. This was never meant to be a long-term thing. This is just a bush on fire. This is just a one-off chance encounter with the Lord by yourself in a quiet place before the battle begins. This is holy ground. And just like Moses, this place is not to keep you here. It's to set you apart for where you're going. So Father, set us apart. Lord, the places where there's still flesh on us, God. There's places where our intimacy with you is is still marred by by brokenness and a sinful, self-gratifying nature. God, I pray that you would point those things out so that we can rid ourselves of them. Father, we welcome you to speak life, to speak direction, and to call us to work the promises, to work the land you've called us to. Lord, forgive us when, when, when we've grown up living off of manna, living off of miracles. But Lord, you have something sustainable and that we're called to participate in its sustenance. So God, may you find in us the heart of a people that will rise to the occasion of stewarding well what you have given us, that Jericho would be taken then New England would be taken. Yeah. That the destiny would be name. made manifest in us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have the best day of your lives. All right, we'll see you next week. This is Pastor Zach, and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys. God bless you, and have the best day of your life.